Hi, I'm Mark Frauenfelder. In this episode of the Institute for the Future podcast, I talk with Miriam Luke Avery. She's a research director here at Institute for the Future, and we talked about how wearables, implantables, and wireless networks will connect our communities and alter our anatomies. Hi, Miriam. Your research around new body language started as a question, what's beyond wearables? And the way you answered that was really interesting. You developed six different archetypes to explore expressions of the new body language. Could you tell me about that? Sure. So um, at first, I just wanted to say that like that, that each of these archetypes helps us learn something about different kinds of expressions. And so this was these six were never meant to be a kind of complete and total list, but really as sort of generative provocations. Um, And some of them, like the athlete, are kind of in pairs. So the athlete and the fan speak to each other, both um, conceptually, but also literally through their devices um, are are interconnected. Um, So the athlete, we were looking at what was happening. A lot of really high-end, sophisticated wearable development is happening in professional sports, um, both to um, monitor and train and extend the capacities of these, you know, really selective, highly paid, highly rewarded individuals who, um, you know, spend large parts of their lives getting really, really good at a few specific things and um, and performing those with amazing skill, um, all of these wearable monitors that were tracking, um, sort of the, the movements of muscle groups or the impact of, um, uh, of a, a collision for football and rugby players. Um, and on one hand, that data is being used for, um, uh, uh, I'll, I'll just go ahead and simplify and call it gambling, right? <laughs> of <laughs> um, of uh, input that's that's used to make bets, both both literal personal bets and also financial and sponsorship bets on the performance of particular people. Um, and on the other hand, um, being used in really interesting ways to convey the experience of the athlete to the fan. Um, and so the alert shirt was a, a project that um, used a, a jersey that rugby players would wear paired with a jersey that rugby fans would wear and using um, heat and compression and, um, and impact sensors and actuators to give fans a visceral sense of what a play in a very contact sport like rugby actually felt like. Um, and so really, really playing with and, and totally messing up the notion of a spectator sport, um, where your body could participate in this experience, um, where anybody's body could participate in the experience of these very selective performers who are professional athletes. So that, that seems to be kind of an, a key component of this new body language is that there are are our parts of our bodies that we're used to with communication, vocal, body language, facial expressions. This kind of new body language is like opening up ways for our body 
to communicate with us and with other people that normally never really had a voice, you know, perspiration, heartbeat, uh, uh, brain state and stuff like that. Capillary dilation. Right. Um, and it's, it's very exciting to think about, um, how some of these levers that are not auditory, not visual, not, you know, the usual mediums that we think about for communication are much more visceral and emotional, um, literally like capillary dilation and heat and, and diaphragm compression are some of the best triggers that we know of to create emotional states. Um, so one of my other favorite signals that informed that, um, both the athlete and the fan archetypes, um, is sensory fiction, which is an MIT media lab project, which was a book that you would read. And as you progressed in the story, it came with a harness that would actually compress your diaphragm or make you feel a, a weight on your shoulders, um, or a lifting of a weight on your shoulders, um, and, uh, light and sound and vibration that all work together to create, um, a much more immersive story, um, than, than could be told otherwise. That's really cool. And it kind of reminds me of something that I think it was an evolutionary biologist or psychologist said about the fact that we don't run because we're scared. We're scared because we run and, that, you know, doing something to your body like that can create this emotional response. Right, right. And and action and um, action and emotion don't just have a, a, a motivating or corollary relationship, but they actually reinforce each other. The other thing about the relationship between the athlete and the fan, besides different parts of our bodies being part of that communication, um, is that the scale of communication is really different um, when we start engaging those parts of our bodies. So, for instance, you might think of a hug as something that is totally intimate. It can only happen between a handful of people at most. Um, but with this kind of technology, you can think about hugs that can actually be delivered to millions of people hugs that could be broadcast. Um, and that's that sort of shift in um, what we think of as mass media and what we think of as really intimate interpersonal communication um, is, is really fascinating and cuts in many, many directions. Let's take a look at a couple of the other archetypes. The, the eater, the eater, that's uh, an interesting archetype to have. Yes. Yeah. So we wanted um, a few of our archetypes to be, um, we, we wanted to really break out from that mold of, of the 30 the something business person in a suit. Um, and so we wanted to think about um, older people and younger people. And so the, um, the, uh, the archetype of the unwell and the eater are another sort of paired um, set of archetypes and the eater is really young, um, is, uh, coming out of a lot of our forecasts around the future of food and the future of personal well-being, where, um, like we're seeing children and, and very young people be much more engaged 
in, um, in their own bodies in a really particular way than we've ever seen in the past. Um, and so the eater is sort of the avatar of um, the young food movement, um, uh, a sort of evolution of, of the, the Bill Nye, the science guy and magic school bus curiosity um, of, of uh, slightly older cohorts than, than her. Um, but she really allows us to think about, well, what does, you know, what do these technologies look like in the hands of youthful curiosity and a sort of fascination with and a sense of wonder about the world um, and uh, a generation for whom the quantified self has never not existed um, and has never not been a global movement. So um, the idea that she would be interested in the contents of her food, in the contents of her guts and her microbiome, in the contents of the soil, and how all of those things interacted um, is a very futuristic story, um, but that we can see lots and lots of signals of today from, um, from Ubiome and, and the, the American Gut Project and all of the, um, the citizen science that's happening in, um, in microbiome science where, you know, high, literally high school classrooms are sending in samples of their poop, right? Um, and, and, and contributing that data to science. Um, and so it's, um, it's a very different kind of motivation than uh, a commercial productivity motivation. Right. And, and I like one of the things she's holding is a handheld spectrometer which uh, I know that there are uh, – I was just talking to a guy who whose goal is to create a $1,000 mass spectrometer. That would, like, open up so much in in, uh, in eating and health, you know, detecting mercury in fish, caffeine in your, your decaf. Uh, do, your sup, you do your ginseng tablets really have ginseng in them, or is it just ground-up houseplants? Um, th- this is – there, there are just a handful of – really actually pretty far along projects that are trying to make that a reality. And even um, I even uh, spoke with a a researcher for years years ago who was in the very early stages of creating a handheld um, uh, stable isotope analyzer um, where you could find not just chemically what something was, but the actual origins of any given food you could tell what continent you could tell what zip code that came from um and it's just it's really uh, imagining those technologies in the hands of somebody who who has wants to express that curiosity is just really is is really delightful that's really cool so so the eater is kind of using this new body language technology to to stay healthy and uh, improve their health. The, the unwell archetype seems to be someone who is using technology to k- kind of compensate for for the loss of of ability in in some ways, like a a uh, artificial intelligence to help a fading memory, um, uh, a camera that that records smells because you know smell is associated with memory so profoundly. Um, how did you identify the unwell as a kind of a illustrative example of new body language? Right. Well, 
Um, a, a lot of our research in, um, in health and healthcare has to do with looking at, um, looking at, at demographic and epidemiological trends and, and trying to imagine ahead of them. And one that we've been very interested in over the years um, is aging in general, but in particular, um, the sort of wave of dementia and, and Alzheimer's and other cognitive impairments, um, because that's, that's something that is coming um, that it's sort of like not disputed that that's going to be a really huge issue in the next 10, 20 years. Um, but there are many things about um, our social relationships, our legal practices, our care systems that are not really well prepared for that reality. Um, and so the unwell is um, sort of takes the assumption that um we in the next 10 years come up with some, some responses to that, but a lot of it is still on families and the individual. Um, and, uh, and the unwell is our sort of avatar of the, you know, slightly tech savvy um, person who's recognizing that they're in a state of cognitive decline and grasping for anything that, w- that is going to help them cope with, the loss of their capacities to um, to supplement their capacities and, and live the kind of life that they want to live as much as they're able, um, but also interact with their family in a really different way um, than than caregivers today are able to. And so there's lots of really inspiring projects around memory mapping in um for, for people with Alzheimer's and, and people in their families so that they can document memories that can be relived or, or listened to or re-experienced. Um, some of those are through um, VR. Some of those are through wearables like, like the, the, now, uh, the now sunsetted narrative clip. Um, but there's a, there's a really powerful family story and how we express our body language um, as a, as an expression of family, when we want to share things with our families, when we want to hide things from our families. Um, And that, um, that sense of when, when do you want to be connected and when, when is it appropriate or empowering to be isolated from others? Um, That's really what the, the unwell helps us explore. Um, And it also helps us explore some, um, some edgier, uh, in and on the body technologies, such as the the medical marijuana prescription, um, interacting with an ingestible sensor, right? Um, so we're looking at things that are um, that are part of the changing landscape that um, uh, the the people who are having these conversations about designing these technologies are maybe not connecting to their efforts. Right. Well, I mean that that's. Uh pretty appropriate in, in the, the last election now we have i think 28 states that are uh, are okay with medical marijuana so that's definitely the the realm of possibility so the the final two um kind of archetypal two sides of a, another coin are the the partier and the laborer so working hard and and playing hard i guess would be a, a way to to go with that so so uh Let's talk a little bit about that. How, how does the, the partier express body, new body language with uh, 
with this kind of technology. One of the things that I love about the partier and the laborer is it's not just that the partier is playing hard and the laborer is working hard, but the partier is actually working by playing and the laborer is playing while she works. Um, and so it really kind of emphasizes how, you know, if, if we look at what's happened over the last 10 years where the distinction between consumer technology and business technology has really broken down in many ways. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know how many meetings that I've been in where people have their laptops, people have their personal tablets, people have their phones, people, you know, maybe, maybe they have a business smartphone and a personal smartphone and they just carry both around all the time. Um, that there's been this real, um, erosion of the line between what is a working technology and what is a playing technology. And both of these archetypes help us think about that. Um, so the partier specifically, um, he, he's not just a, a person who is partying. His, his life is partying. He gets his income from partying. He's like a, he is a sponsored partying personality. Um, and all of these, um, all of these technologies he has on him help him monetize the skill that he has of having a really good time um, and share it and amplify it and use it to influence other people's experiences. So whether that's the, the bioreactive DJ bracelet that uses his body's feedback to change the music in a club or um, the, the clothing that he's wearing that's changing with his moods and sort of helping signal other people of where his energy is at and where their energy is at. Um, the, the life logging camera and, and the ability to, um, to monetize his experiences like we see people who are monetizing their experiences today on, on Instagram um, and, and YouTube. Um, to, you know, the, the, probably the most controversial thing on here is the, the biometric party track tracker that broadcasts his blood alcohol level and is sort of a, it's sort of a game for everyone in the club. Can you keep up? Um, and so there's a lot of interesting questions here about party culture, about, um, about safety, um, and, uh, and, and the ethics of promoting a partying lifestyle. Um, which is certainly, you know, conversations that we've had with our, our clients who are in the food and beverage space. Um, and so it's a, you know, there's a little bit of, of blockchain and like could, you know, if he gets enough likes on the experience that he's broadcasting, could he pick up a sponsor and buy a round of booze for everyone in the room, right? There are all of these um, interactions that when we see the trends of monetizing particular experiences, particularly around their entertainment value um, and how experiences that are entertaining are sold to individuals, that the question of who's a content creator, who's a consumer, who is, you know, an entertainment professional, who is, is, you know, just a participant um, get really blurry in some really interesting ways. Oh yeah. So, so how about the worker? I'm really interested in how this worker is working and being entertained at the same time. Right. 
So the laborer is, um, we, again, we wanted to get as far away from that like white collar guy in a business suit as we possibly could. Um, and so we were looking at, um, sort of skilled manufacturing jobs and, um, thinking about how people with differing physical capacities could continue to do laboring jobs in the future with these technologies. So kind of the foundation of the laborer is an exoskeleton that helps augment her physical capacities um, and uh, an augmented reality headset that helps her interact with potentially dangerous um, work sites in a really safe and um, and also creepily surveilled way. Um, and so there's a bit of a, a push and pull of like, these things could be great. These things could also have some trade-offs. Um, and, you know, there, there are very concrete signals of, of both of those things happening um, today. And um, on top of that, there's a question of, okay, do we see a, a shift back to industrial applications of computing technologies where your, for instance, your Daiquiri headset can only show you safety information and work-related information? Or now that people are used to blending their personal technology and their professional technology, might we see that extending out um, into this kind of world as well? And so um, we we actually went back quite and forth quite a bit in in writing this archetype and hammering around the details so that um, so that she's safe, right? So that we're we're not suggesting that she's compromising her safety, but she you know she really wants to take a break and listen to her music without changing her headset, um, and so you know she. You know, she drowns out the noise with this noise canceling thing. Her friend unlocked the AR device, so now she can like stream stand up when she takes a break. Um, and so, you know, we're we're imagining a world where maybe even if something is made to be just a, an industrial um, uh, application, that people will still find ways to to do the equivalent of playing games on your work phone. So to to come up with these archetypes, you did a lot of research into the enabling technologies that are that are emerging. Some are here today. Uh, some of them are are down the road a bit. But uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about that um, uh, auditory recognition systems and computer vision. We're seeing that. That that's happening like crazy right now. Um, I just got the uh, the Amazon dot, and uh, where my whole family's having con- conversations with Alexa now. It's, it's pretty incredible how quickly she's become a member of the family. Um, uh, computer vision. I just playing around with uh, a Google artificial intelligence game where you have twenty seconds to draw something and. The AI has to guess, and it's incredible. I drew like a line and a stick coming out of it with like an umbrella, and it guessed it was a beach in about three seconds. So this stuff is like amazingly powerful. Um, what uh, 
where, from your research, where do you see this kind of technology heading and, and what is it going to enable? So in, in terms of this research, I think there's a really bright line between um, the work of Thomas Zimmerman at Xerox Park back in the 1990s, um, who actually coined the term personal area networks. Um, and he was really looking at um, back when, when mouses were, you know, hot, you know, the hot interface, <laughs> you know, a computer mouse was really, was really revolutionary. Um, he was looking at, well, I mean, all it does is, is get you to move a point around. And there's so many things that we do with our hands as humans to, um, to gesture, to express, to communicate. Um, wouldn't it be lovely, um, if, if computers could understand that language. Um, and so he created the first sort of virtual reality handsets. Um, and his work is kind of the, the, the source, the, both the conceptual and the literal source code for um, gesture recognition and kiosks and things. This, this is the data glove, right? Yes, the data glove. That's right. Um, and there's a, a really bright line between that and, say, Google's Project Soli, which is, you know, the small chip that can be embedded in, in anything and basically makes a gesture recognition interface out of it um, so that you could have a chip that's in your, your sleeve and it would render your hand an input device to whatever computer interface you're, you're carrying around with you. Um, and so I, th I think the big takeaway here is that, you know, humans gesture. Every culture has a language of gestures. There, there are already new languages of gestures that um, designers have created based on the limited capacities of the technologies um, for, for visual and, um, and auditory recognition that we had so far. And so this is where we can really see the body language becoming a computer language and vice versa. Um, that maybe our computers speak Italian hand gestures and um, our computers speak sign language. Um, and a lot of the, um, the barrier to people finding really, even like with as much progress as the quantified self, movement has made in in pushing on device designers over the last um, eight years, even with all of that progress, there's still just a lot of care and feeding that goes to interacting with any device to help it help you. And the visual and the auditory recognition, um, to me, are all about lowering that transaction cost between giving something a computer giving a computer something that is useful enough for it to work with without humans having to, to change their behavior at all, really. So, you know, people and animals have, have evolved to communicate in certain ways. And this technology is really like changing the types of communication and changing the bandwidth of the, the signals coming through. How do you think that we're going to adapt to this? Is it is it going to be overload, or 
is the uh, human nervous system adaptable enough that it's going to be able to accept and interpret and manage all of this new information? So I'm not a neuroscientist, but generally I give the human nervous system a lot of credit for being quite adaptable. Um, I am an anthropologist, and so I think that aside from the question of whether or not it's cognitively going to be helpful or harmful for us to interact with these technologies. Cause I think, I think that, that we're talking about so many different technologies. It's, it's kind of impossible to lump them all together in, in that context. Um, but there's definitely, you know, some really profound things about human culture and which people will adopt particular kinds of technologies and which people will reject them at different parts of their lives because they do or don't um, uh, support a particular cultural pattern or so, even if that pattern is like the novelty of adopting something new. Um, that's, that's definitely a cultural pattern that we see in Silicon Valley among people of many national origins. Um, but uh, if these technologies can help us express our individual and our cultural imperatives, um, you know, we'll, we'll go through a lot of discomfort to figure out how to get that value out of them. Um, and we've seen that with all of the technologies that have been invented in the last 200 years. Um, and even with technologies like, like ropes and wheels and fire and things, um, that, you know, none of these are, are easy things, right? Like they all require us even, even like making stone tools requires us to think about space and think about matter a little bit differently than we would have before then. Um, painting pictures of ourselves gets us to think about our own image in different ways than we would have before then. Um, and, you know, you can go back like 45,000 years to, you know, the, um, the first, um, pictograms of human faces that the, the Aborigines in Australia made. Um, and imagine that change of the first person who saw themselves in a rock and having that profound mirror experience with something that wasn't alive. Um, I, I feel like culturally we're on the verge of that same kind of phase shift in what we think is alive, what we think has its own sense of expression, um, and how we're able to express ourselves as humans um, and as individuals in our cultural and historical contexts, um, using these technologies when they're helpful and ignoring them or destroying them when they aren't. For more information about Institute for the Future and the work we do, visit iftf.org.